Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're in the section of the Heidelberg Catechism where we do our yearly prayer training. The church goes through the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us, not so much to evaluate the content, the theological content of each line, but to learn how the Lord Jesus would have us pray. So it's not so much the content of the prayer, but it's it's, it's how we're praying. And so we begin in the first line with the address. Our Father in heaven. And as I was reflecting upon this address and what we confess in the Catechism in Lord's Day 46, I thought of the fairly common trope that you, that you you'll read in articles and, and you'll see in, in posts on social media that it's okay to be angry with God. You ever read something like that? It's okay to be, just tell God how angry you are with what he's doing, what he has done. Is it, is it okay to be angry with God? Well, what do we confess? What has Jesus commanded us to do? Jesus teaches us to approach God in a certain way, he tells us, he puts on our lips this address, our Father in heaven. And we confess he does that to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. So when we read the words that the Lord Jesus puts in our lips, our Father, these are not words of lashing out and being angry at God. And when we read the confession of the church, we read of childlike reverence and trust, which should be basic to our prayer. Now, if we look to the scriptures, we see that. We see, for instance, and I'll, I'll turn with you in, uh, to Isaiah chapter 63. I'll, I'll be going through Isaiah 63 and 64. So if you have your Bible open, that will be helpful for you probably. So looking at Isaiah 63, 8. Now Isaiah is, is prophesying about the, the future punishment of God's people for their sins and then the restoration which follows. And so in, in 63, 8, the Lord is speaking. He said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior, and all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So here is the, the biblical figure of God as a father looking in mercy upon the people of God, taking them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and bringing them through the desert into the promised land. And he he does it as a father, as a father caring for children, lifting them up and, and carrying them along. As we read this description of the Exodus, that's what it is, it reminds us of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which speaks in similar terms. Hosea 11, 1, the Lord speaking about Israel, he says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And if you skip to verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. 
Look at verse 4. I led them with cords of kindness. Look at the end of verse 4. I bent down to them and fed them. So, so God uses the, the metaphor of a loving father as a father teaching his little toddler to take his first steps, gently feeding him, scooping him up into his arms and carrying them along when the little toddler is, is tired. And that's the same kind of metaphor we saw in Isaiah 63. And yet how do God's people respond to this incredible love of the Father? Well, we see that in verse 2, if you've got your Bible open to Isaiah 11. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Oh, this is just one example. We can go and multiply the examples in the Old Testament. If someone's going to be angry with someone else, who's it going to be? Who has the right to be angry in this relationship? You know, when God's people are in exile for their sins because they've repeatedly turned to idols, they've repeatedly broken covenant with God, they've repeatedly spurned his fatherly love, and they're reaping the results of what they have sown, who should be angry with whom? So going back to Isaiah 63, and now looking at verse 15, the prophet knows how to approach a holy God as a representative of a sinful and unworthy people. Isaiah 63, 15, there is appeal. There's not anger. There are not demands. There are not complaint saying, Lord, what have you done with us? This is not right. Get us out of this exile. Bring us back to the promised land. We've had enough of this. What are you doing? No. There's plea for mercy. Look at verse 15 of Isaiah 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Lord, Please, we need your mercy, we need your compassion, but we're not sensing it, and that frightens us. We need you, Lord. Look how he continues. Why do we need God's compassion? Well, look at verse 16. For you are our Father. You are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. That's why we need you. We need your love. We need your compassion. We need your, your, your guidance. We need you to come save us from the mess that we've made for ourselves and, the, and the, the abyss into which we have plunged ourselves. So there's a longing for the Father and an awareness of, of sin, and that comes even clearer in chapter 64. Chapter 64, verse, verse 5. Behold, looking at the second part of the verse, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The prophet understands what the problem is. The problem is not God. The answer is not to to cry out to God in anger and say, Lord, you've got to fix things because you've made a mess of things. No, the answer is to confess and say, Lord, we're sinners. We've messed up and how we need your compassion, your love, and your grace. And then look at verse 8. Look where a right understanding of who God is and who we are brings us. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. You're all your people. So, once again, not anger, but pleas for mercy, confession of sin. So, so the question we started the sermon off with, can we be angry with God? And the answer is yes, we can be, but maybe we shouldn't be. We can, it's possible to be angry with God, but should we be? And you know, brother and sister, if we're angry with God, and I'm not talking about being brutally honest with God. I'm not talking about crying out in our pain and saying, Lord, I can't handle things anymore. And just being very, very open with God about how, how much pain we're in and, and how we're distressed and, and saying, Lord, I can't, I can't go on. That's different, though, than being angry with God. And I would say this, that, that someone who is angry with God doesn't know who they are and doesn't know who God is. That's a problem because those are two basic things that we need to know as children of God. We need to know who we are. We need to know who God is. And the more we know who God is, the more we realize who we are. And the more we understand who we are in ourselves by nature, the more we know and understand the great majesty and holiness and glory of God. These are things that are basic to a Christian understanding of the world. Now, we have an example in the scripture of someone who got really frustrated, someone who was suffering very, very badly and was having difficulty putting up with that suffering and began to pour out his complaint to God and and, and came very close to to lashing out in anger. Job began to call God to account. What are you doing, Lord, in my life? We can feel for Job. He didn't understand what was happening. He was in pain. But that pain had to last till he learned his lesson. And he does finally. If you look at Job chapter 40, verse 1, Job chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? In our language, you got a problem with me? You think you can accuse me of something, Job? He who argues with God, let him answer it. 
And Job clues in, doesn't he? Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job finally figured out who he was and who God is. And then what happens in chapter 42? Just if you flip the page, if you're there, chapter 42, the first verses. This is right in the last chapter of the book. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, you are sovereign. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. He's quoting here. And then he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When, when Job finally gets the picture, he realizes that he has no standing before God to, to raise his fist and to, and, to, and to demand justification, to demand satisfaction from the Almighty, to demand explanations for what God is doing in his life. He is reduced to repentance. Repentance in dust and ashes. He finally understands God is holy, that he is a sinner. And that's the biblical model, brothers and sisters, for how we approach God. We need to know who we are. We need to know who he is. And when we forget who he is, when we forget who we are, we begin to pray in a way which is not right. And we can lash out in anger and entitlement and we can utter things that we do not understand because we have not yet been confronted with the depth of our sin and unworthiness, nor do we have an idea of the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty and the grace of God. And so we can be like a child, a petulant, unthankful or ungrateful child. The parents bring the little child to the doctor for a vaccine. And the vaccine is for the child's good, but it hurts. And so when the child gets the shot, the petulant, angry child glares at his parents and says, I hate you. You hurt me. What are you doing bringing me to this doctor person and jabbing things into me and hurting me? I demand satisfaction. Well, that's very ugly, isn't it? It's very ugly because a child who has a good relationship with their parents, even if they don't exactly understand what's going on, they trust their parents, that their parents are doing what is for their best. Or when the parents tell the children to eat vegetables, and then the child reacts in anger, saying, why are you taking away my joy? I want to eat candies. I want to drink puff. That's what I want to live up. And that kind of a reaction, it's all about me. It's all about my wants and how I feel and what I accept. 
Little kids can make that mistake, but big people can act wrongly too. They're just better at camouflaging it. A, wild child, a wise child loves her father and shows respect and trust that even if I don't understand why I have to go through this, it's not pleasant, but my father loves me and it's necessary. I can give you another example, a little girl learning to ride her bike. And I haven't actually been able to do that very well with my children, but I imagine that parents that manage to do it, the father runs along and, and, and then at a certain moment, let's go, you have to let go. The child has to eventually learn to bike by themselves. And what happens sometimes, often, the first few times that you let go, there's a wobble, there's a fall, there's a scrape, and there are tears. There are two possibilities to, to respond to that. You can, the little girl can run to her daddy for comfort and get back on and say, thanks, daddy, I'll try again. And, and, and thank you for your help. Got to get through this. It might hurt a little bit, but it's, it's to grow and it's to develop. It's to acquire the skill. It's necessary. Or if the child is not in a good place and the relationship is not in a good place, the child can scream and stamp their foot in anger and say, what have you done to me? You've ruined my pair of jeans, the ones with the little flowers on them, and I'm bleeding and I'm hurt and I, I hate you. I'm angry. And that's very ugly if a reaction like that happens. But that's how big people sometimes cry out to God in ingratitude. And that means there's something wrong with the relationship. It means we don't understand something very basic. And that is this, that God loves us. And that everything that he does to us, for us, Everything he brings us through, he does it because he loves us. That includes the, the really happy things, and that includes the really painful things. And we have to hold on to that love. And we need to interpret all of our joys and our pains through the prism of that eternal love. He has made it abundantly clear. We see his love everywhere. We see it in the incarnation. We see it in the cross. We see it in the resurrection. We see it in the pouring out of his spirit. We see it in his adopting us to be his children. We see it in his providence and his provision and his mercies new every morning. And in our baptism, he seals his love on us. And in the supper, the banquet, the feast of love in which we commune with our Savior, in every way and all the time, God shows us how much he loves us. And sometimes all we can see are the hard things, the pain, the inconvenience, the frustrations, the afflictions, the things we don't like. Even though he has sent them, they come from his fatherly hand. We confess that way back in Laws 8.10. We don't like them. And we say, like spoiled little children, we say, Lord, I don't want to eat my broccoli. I want candy. I want to live off candy, Lord. I want a life of continued ease and wealth and leisure and fun and entertainment. I do not want these hard things that you are sending my way. 
And brothers and sisters, if we understand who God is, if we understand his love, if we understand that he is our father, if we understand that he is at work in our life, that he has a goal, that he has a reason, even if we don't always understand it, then we don't lash out in anger and petulance, but we reverence him, we respect him. Our Father knows what we need more than we do. And he will give us not what we want, but he will give us what is best. That's how a good father operates. He gives us not what we want. He gives us what is best. Because he is God the Father Almighty. He is the Father Almighty. He is our Father in heaven. He is the Father, that means deep, deep, infinite love. He is almighty. He's in heaven. That means infinite power. He loves to take care of us. He can. He has the power to take care of us because everything belongs to him. All of history is under his sovereign control. Every cell in our body, every molecule in the universe. So why do we have to worry? If we really know who he is, why do we have to worry? Why do we have to complain? We read Matthew 6, he takes care of the little birds. Who feeds the birds? What did we read, children? We read, your heavenly Father feeds them. That's what the Lord Jesus told us. Have you ever thought about that? If we had to get human beings to organize the feeding of the birds, have you ever seen a massive, massive, massive flock of birds suddenly alight on some field somewhere, and before you know it, they've picked all the seeds and all the the edibles they can find, and then they're off again. Imagine human beings trying to just organize that one feeding. It would be a very, very difficult thing. And yet, around the globe, the Lord's doing that all the time. He provides for the little birds. And the Lord Jesus continues there in Matthew chapter 6. He says, the Gentiles run around desperately trying to get their needs fulfilled. They're always trying to accumulate things and opportunities and and benefits and and advantages to to try and get a little bit ahead, to get a leg up, to to make life just a little bit nicer. The Lord Jesus says, why are you acting like the Gentiles? Why would you do that? You have a father. He loves you. He is in control of all the resources in the universe. You need something, ask him. Why are you running around scrabbling and scraping and trying to get ahead yourself? I remember reading years ago a horrifying story about a a small child that had been terribly, terribly neglected and had been left by herself, a little toddler, left by herself in a house for a long, long time without care, just every now and again would be given a little bit of food, but suffered terribly. You know what she would do? She was rescued. And she was given food she would tuck some of the food in her diaper for later because she didn't know if she would be fed again. Heartbreaking. A little child living in such fear, being so terribly neglected. But yet, isn't that how we often live? as we scrape and scrabble and try to grab a little more happiness and tuck it away just in case God doesn't come through and provide what we need. 
Look at verse 32 there in Matthew chapter 6. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That's enough. Brother, sister, are you running after your needs? Or like a, a child reaching out their hands to their father, are you saying, Father, I'm thirsty. Father, I'm hungry. Father, care for me. That's all we need to do. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Ask and you shall receive. That's why we can pray with reverence. We don't lash out at God. We don't get angry with God. We pray with reverence and we pray with trust because we know he's going to give us the right answer. Because even sinful human beings, I mean, I gave that example of the poor little toddler, but even the unbeliever knows that's wicked and reprehensible. Even sinful human beings know that parents have got to take care of the basic needs of their children, and when their children ask for some food, you give them some food. Everybody understands that. So how much more should we not understand that we ask and we receive? He gave us himself. So with all our worries and all our fears and needs and concerns, we can come to the Father, brother and sister. We can pour out our heart to him, not in anger, but with love. We can tell him everything that's on our heart because he loves us. He lavished his love upon us. He gave us his own son. Do you think he would withhold anything smaller? He gave us his own spirit. He made us his Children, he loves us as he loves Jesus Christ himself. And so the Bible instructs us, brother and sister, not to come to God in anger. Even when life really hurts. The Bible instructs us to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I am the clay. And you are the potter. You get to decide my life. You get to decide my path. You get to decide my joys and my pains. And I know that you are forming me, that you are sculpting me, that you are molding me for glory. You use prosperity, you use adversity, you use health, and you use sickness to prepare me for an eternity of worship and glory in your presence. When I get home, home with the Father. And so, Father, when I reach out to you like a little child reaching to Father, you will take me by the hand and you will lead me. And you will lift me up and carry me if I can't go on in my own strength because I can never go on in my own strength. And you will provide strength for the day and bright hope for the morrow. And you will answer my sighs and my prayers and my requests with the best answer, with the thing most needed, with the answer which will most glorify you and most help me to love you and serve you better. You delight to hear and answer my prayers. You are not an impersonal life force, cold and impassive. You are not some distant, aloof God of pure will who demands obedience at all costs. You are my Father in Christ. And even if my earthly father and mother forsake me, you will never let go of me. And you have the power 
Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Nothing is too hard for you. The Lord's arm is not shortened. Nothing, no one can withstand you. If you will something to happen, it happens. If you speak, it is done. And so, Lord, with reverence and with trust, I come to you in prayer. And I pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.